Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 48. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. Happy New Year, Tim. Happy New Year, Paul. Have you had a good break? I did indeed. It was uh, very nice indeed. It always goes very quickly, uh, but it was a nice break. How about yourself? Uh, I have a slight confession to make. Oh, uh, God. I've spent, I've basically spent almost the entire Christmas uh, playing a game called Supreme Commander, <laughs> which, is, which is obviously just a reflection of sort of, you know, how, how I view myself in a, in a sort of private capacity. But uh, it's, it's, have you played Civilization? No, but that's one of those okay, sim so, games. Is it a sim game where yeah, you control? Yeah, exactly. So it's a sort of role-playing, sort of god godlike thing. So, so, so the the backstory is civilized. Sid Meier's Civilization is uh, absolutely a genius piece of piece of work. If you haven't played it uh, and you've got kids, uh, I think there's there's a there's a realistic chance that they may like it, but but equally you may like it. Oh right. And so I'll have to get it the, for them in inverted commas. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Ostensibly for the kids. Um, and basically the premise is you start out literally with just one settler and then you settle a city. And then from that point on, um, you get to decide what you want to devote your resources to, whether you want to build another city or, you know, investigate trade or build an army or investigate. So basically you've given all these different technology choices and the whole thing works completely logically. So... Um, in other words, you can't invent certain things or, or try and you know, create or investigate certain things unless you've got the technology to do it. So, for example, you can't you can't you know, investigate you know, creating guns until you've invented gunpowder and you can't do you can't like use metal until you've worked out how to mine it and you know, process it. So it, it's, it's it's a brilliant way of teaching uh, people about the, the fundamentals of civilization. But it's also great fun to the extent that there are various ways of winning because you play against the computer or you can play against other people. But I mean, I play against the computer. Can it be like multiplayer, like across the platform? Absolutely. And I'm sure I mean, I haven't done it with multiple, massive multiple players online, but I'm sure you can do that. Um, But for me, it's the the choice is playing against the computer. And there are multiple ways of winning. So it's not just through military conquest. You can also win a technology victory or a cultural victory. So there are all these ways of doing it. But if you are anything like me, and I suspect most blokes, you end up basically, well, you end up, for example, I think on Civilization 5, which is, I think we're on to either Civ 5 or Civ 6. There's been multiple versions and iterations over time. But basically, if you're anything like me, you end up putting all your, throwing all your resources into developing the giant death robot, which just goes around <laughs> stomping on all of the competitors. So, 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 so it tends to sort of devolve into a very sort of, you know, you know, militaristic, you know, frenzy. Anyhow, so that's civilization. But civilization is sublime. We will get to the markets in a second, I promise you. Uh, but, but on the back of civilization, I, I discovered I use this service called Steam, which basically is a way of. Instead of going to a shop to buy a, a CD-ROM, you just you have a Steam account and then you just download stuff from Steam. So you, you have an account and you fund it, but then you, you download stuff direct from the web. Uh, so it sort of cuts out the cuts out a lot of the sort of the, the middleman process. So Anyhow, ne- Netflix for programs, basically. For it, games. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Netflix for software. Well, for for a variety of things, also for films. You can use it for films, but oh, it's really? just software. Yeah, yeah. So oh. it's it's very flex very flexible platform. But anyhow, so I was sort of mooching around just before Christmas, and I came across this thing, Supreme Commander, which was on a discount. So I got a package with like three three games sort of bundled in for only about 
no, it seemed to be only about three or four quid or something. I don't know if that's that's the case or I just hallucinated that. So I was I was so lost in the moment that I sort of you know got about the price. Anyhow, so I, so I've been playing this game super. Basically, I, I've 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 been you know blind to everything else that's gone on for the last fortnight because this thing is 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 just unbelievably addictive. But basically, I so I mentioned Civilization. But Supreme Commander, which goes back, to, I think, to 2007, so it's quite old uh, now. I mean, I, I view it as a modern thing, but it's it's quite old for, I guess, for sort of hardcore gamers. But the the beauty of Supreme Commander is it's like Civilization, but with all the arty farty stuff just completely removed. All it is is about destruction. It's about you know, you know destroying things and destroying yeah. your competitors, and it's brilliantly addictive. And so I, I've only just scratched the surface on this thing, but basically you've, you've got, you, you, so you represent one force and you can play the, the version I'm, I'm playing at the moment. I'm playing against three other AI generated um, competitors. So combatants. And so the premise is, it's a bit like Civ in that there's, a, there's an internal logic to the game. You've, you've got the two, the two key supplies one or resources one is mass and you need to extract mass to then create stuff and the other one is energy you need energy to you know to enable to to empower your troops and and you know do all that do all that stuff and build things so you need mass and energy and there are places where you can mine for mass and then you can just build uh, power generators to generate your electricity to generate your energy but the point is you can't over expand because otherwise you run out of energy and then nothing nothing works and in the meantime, you sort of so you build, you slowly build out your infrastructure, and then as in civilization, you've got all these different sort of technology choices, um, but they're all militaristic in one way or another. So you can build factories, and then those factories can churn out different types of technologies. And for example, well, so anyway, so that's basically where I've been. I've been sort of locked <laughs> like a morlock in in my study for the last fortnight playing this game because because it's just it's, it's just endlessly variable as well because the ai I, I think the ai is watching me while i sleep because it, it gets more efficient every time i play it but learn but it, tactics it, it, <laughs> exactly it's, yeah. it's, it's like it's like probing my dreams but uh but it, it, it's furiously addictive oh wow uh, and again it's literally like every every game is different because you know, because the ai i i have to I, i'm not a coder but i have to assume that, that quite a bit of effort has gone into making this fairly sophisticated yeah so anyhow so so it's, it's like playing you know real people uh and it's even i'm playing it on the easiest setting and even then i'm probably probably only running at a sort of 50 percent success rate because it sometimes it just it just kills me really really quickly or kills my my troops and my forces but what i was going to make i was going to make an analogy to to the markets which is you know i'm a defensive investor and i play this game the same way i invest in other words you know, you, you can basically go any number of ways as you as you're playing this thing. Um, so the version I've got is there are four little islands, and so you inhabit one of them, and then the other three are like sort of four four corners of a of a square. And that's where the islands are. So, you, and the beauty of the thing is you you can build out land forces, air forces, and marine forces. So you can build warships, and you can build you know, aircraft, and you can build sort of ground-to-air stuff. It, it, the whole thing is just is so well thought through. Um, but it, every game is different. And anyhow, so one way you can win is, is simply by being very aggressive very quickly. But bear in mind that the AI representing the other three players is, is also doing similar things probably to what you're doing. So, yeah. so you, have like, no, you have no clear advantage exactly. until you no build advantage. it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You've got no clear advantage. So the, the advantage will come if you've deployed your resources more efficiently and more effectively than they have. But basically, the way it seems to work is that they 
they, the, you know, the other three, the other three sort of, you know, bots, if you like, tend to just build loads of stuff and then send it into to action. A bit like the kind of Chinese approach, which is we've got 1.4 billion people. So no, we don't have to be too picky about you know, the sanctity of human life here. Whereas I'm exactly the opposite. I, I hate to lose anything. I hate to lose, you know, uh, an engineer is, is, is the sort of key driver. So you can build engineers in factories and then they will go about building things for you on, on command from you. And so that the, the, the big thing point I'm, I'm going to make is that I play this game exactly the same way I like to think that I invest. Namely, you know, for me, it's all about not losing. So in other words, once I've built a sort of a factory infrastructure and I've got it all sort of sufficiently uh, serviced through, through, through energy, then the first thing I do is not effectively the equivalent of the giant death robot, yeah. but rather it's like uh, uh, nuclear um, missile defenses. Mm. So that the, the, thing, the thing that invariably kills me is I get to get nuked by the other people, probably ganging up on me as well because they, you know, they know how popular I am. And so you've got all this strategy, but it's the, the, what's really intriguing is that it's the way I'm going about it. And I, I'm sure everyone's different, but the way I'm going about it is I prefer to win by basically getting the defense stuff sorted at the get go and then building the, the aggressive stuff. Right, right. So do you do you play chess as well, Tim? No, I haven't played chess since I was at school. Uh -huh. uh, but I'd, I'd be willing to take it up again. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of the books I've got on the go at the moment is by Gary Kasparov, oh. and it's it's about AI. But I haven't um, I haven't haven't really sort of started scratching the surface on that one yet. Oh, but right. anyhow, enough enough of my ranting about about games. But it's a, that's the reason why basically I have not done anything other than play this game for the last two weeks. I, I'm now even paler than normal, and I re reacting very poorly to sunlight. Uh, you know, it's 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 been a very strange, but rather rather wonderful uh, experience. But I recommend these these two games extremely. It's kind of like media picks out of the way from the get go. But civilization civilization is a great learning uh, device, and Supreme Commander is just you know amazing amounts of fun for 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 as a sort of boys' toys type type thing. I can just imagine you at four o'clock in the morning with your your, gl <laughs> your glass of port. <laughs> Come on, I've got to do this again. <laughs> Was it, was it like where, where do they get their nukes where do they get these <laughs> yeah. wonderful toys that was, how was your christmas it was, was very it? nice thank you yeah not 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 quite so cooped up in front of a screen but uh, not yeah quite so geeky, not quite so geeky but yeah. on that note i mean I, I happen to have to say i for me in particularly in relation to films we, we might as well start the media picks before, and then get onto the markets let's do it let's do it yeah let's why not things. yeah let's change things new up. year new rules there's no and, rules um yeah, there, there are no rules. And um, so the, the, the media pick I, I would have would be, it, because it's been a bit of a bust, I've, I find there's been very little worth watching um, film-wise on, on TV. And we, we have Sky and I have Netflix. But the, 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 the book I'm going to mention is it's actually a film review book. It's a book called Have You Seen? Oh. Question mark, by David Thompson, who is one of the best, for my money, one of the best um, film critics in, in the country, if not the world. Oh, fantastic, and, Tim. You and know have I love you, that. Have You Seen is, well, the subtitle is a personal introduction to a thousand films. So there are, a, each film gets a page. So there are a thousand films in a, ranging from the, the dawn of film, you know, you know, uh, Birth of a Nation, all that kind of stuff, all the way through to basically the present day. And most of them are great. So, as, as he describes it, some of them are masterpieces, some of them are oddities, and some of them are guilty pleasures with just one or two disasters thrown in. But I, I've had this sort of kicking around for a while. And it was this Christmas I finally got the chance when I tore myself away from Supreme Commander to, you know, to dipping into this. And it's just an absolute joy. I'll give you, I'll cite just one review by way of example. 
So his review of Jaws, which which oh, I find is one of those films when it's on TV, even though I've seen it you know fifty times, oh, you've got to watch. I'll it. still watch it. I'll still watch it because yeah. it's just it's it's just brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And the the part of his review for Jaws is it's basically saying it's a bit of a kind of popcorn confection, but it's extremely well done. Now that's that's the sort of the way he. That, that's the sort of the, the, the impression. But the way he actually ex- describes it is as, and this I think is just superb, is zero to the power of 10. Oh, right. <laughs> and I just think, you know, by way of a concise review, you can't top that. I mean, that's, that's not even any letters. It's just two <laughs> numerals. <laughs> but, that's brilliant. But that's, that's the thing. It's, it's absolutely superb for anyone that really is into film. Because the film, the, the reviews themselves are like miniature works of art. They're like miniature essays, very thought provoking. You won't necessarily agree, yeah. But it just, it, I, mean, I will certainly, yes, it's opinion. But I'll certainly be watching some so slightly arty, maybe perhaps foreign stuff, maybe some black and white stuff on the back of this because this guy knows his stuff. The other book I would cite, and it, it, this may be um, new territory for sort of the people who've grown up with the web. Uh, and it's a it's I have my sister to thank for this one because she got me a book called Halliwell's Film Guide when I was uh, a kid. So I reckon I, I got this bought to me, bought for me as a present around 1984, 1985, something like that. So I've had it for a long time. And, you know, Leslie Halliwell is the author and the reviewer. He died, I think, in the 90s. But um, Halliwell's Film Guide still lives on, albeit other people have sort of picked up the baton and started doing the reviews. Halliwell's Film Guide is the Bible for people who like film because it basically has reviews of every film ever made wow. and they're capsule reviews. So they're quite, they're quite short. Um, they tip, but the thing is even then that you get all the pertinent information. So you get the title year of release director, the other sort of critical attributes, their producer, you know, director of photography, cinematography, um, if, you know, the writer or screenwriter, uh, there'll be a, a little very brief summation of the plot and then when it warrants it, there'll be, for example, there'll be references to Academy Awards or nominations and, and other awards that it may have won. And when it warrants it, there'll also be a sort of, you know, some some quotes from people at the time, so, you know, journalistic reviews and maybe ex- more extensive coverage for stuff that's really worth it, something like a Citizen Kane or a Casablanca. But the thing is, the web, imdb.com, has not replaced this stuff. It's merely supplemented it. Yeah. Because if you want to just dip in for pleasure, you can't do this on IMDb because it, it, it's it's just so inefficient to just to scroll through and yeah. click through. Whereas whereas with a book that you can open, that just if you open it up, you know there'll be thirty films there that you could sort of have a little look at. And there's a game I used to play with my brother um, where you just you you pick out just a plot and and it, it would be name that film. And there's there's a great one for example. I, I don't know if this is a real review or not. It might be a spoof, but there's there's a review of um, The Wizard of Oz that was apparently published in some U.S. publication that said something like a uh, uh, a girl a girl teams up with some some basically some sort of uh, uh, some like some some refugees to to, to kill and to kill again or something. It's a really funny, <laughs> it's a really funny sort of, sort of jaundiced. You know, but 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 technically accurate synopsis of the plot, and it's very very funny. So anyhow, so that's a game you can play with with Halliwell. But the, Halliwell's film guide is is possibly the thing that really sort of absolutely sort of concreted my um, you know really sort of solidified my uh, my interest in film because it's as I say it's it's just the resource and it's just wonderful to dip into stuff and find something that you haven't haven't otherwise seen and you go okay I must just check that out. 
Is is it online or do you just get the book? Uh, no, no, you get the book. I mean, there may there may be an online presence, but that, that's that's sort of defeating the point. The yeah. point is to have you know the the beauty of this thing is a sort of a, a sort of pre pre internet artifact is you know it, it doesn't take any time to power up, so mm. you can just you know you can take it on the beach and all the rest, uh, and you can just dip into it and, and look for film ideas. But it's 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 absolutely superb. And I say more specifically, the the David Thompson book will give you ideas for you know. From from a very good critic. I mean, the, my two favourite film critics would be David Thompson and Nigel Andrews, who, who bizarrely writes for the FT, but he, he's also someone I really enjoy. Mark Commode gets a mention in Dispatches, of course, but uh, no, for me, Nigel Andrews and, and David Thompson are the guys. There's been a recent resurgence in the uh, in the book, in the printed book, apparently, and old books now starting to go for lots of money, you know, and not not such old books like, say, first editions of Harry Potter uh, starting to really bump up in price. So I think you're you're getting the vinyl effect into books now. Mm. Where it seems we, that way, doesn't it? Yeah, because it's, I don't like to, to buy books that, that aren't in hard copy format or, you know, obviously okay. printed format, because if you want to give it to somebody or, you know, find it at the at the last minute you don't want to be going through a, a kindle that's probably going to get broken or something i mean there is a place for that stuff but ultimately if you're going to choose a book and because people have such small sort of windows with which to read you're going to pick something that's really good you you may as well get a, a hard copy of it and uh and then keep it if you enjoy it you can give it to someone or hand it down but you can't you can't do that any other way so i think it, it's an interesting turn around in 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 digital media you know as we went from itunes to to vinyl i think we're going to see a resurgence a broader resurgence in in proper books which i think is, ver- is a very nice thing i i i, I, I that sounds right to me i mean i i i've been i you know i think i've inherited a sort of genetic uh hoarding mechanism from you know from my parents and um you know there's just something nice about the, the physicality of a book but i mean i don't have kin like, at some point i'll probably i'll probably succumb in the same way i succumbed to netflix but um there's something you know there's a tactile pleasure in a book and yeah, uh and, and i think it, again it, it addresses that human the, the thing that i think is almost universal that human need to sort of just need or just a drive to acquire and keep things well you feel more like you own it's it don't warm. you isn't it absolutely it's, yeah absolutely. where you don't feel like you really own it when it's on a drive somewhere it's just kind of weird it's got to be tangible but i guess may- maybe we're of a different generation maybe the you know the younger generation but having said that my my daughter she insists on getting volumes of books you know and so she she doesn't really take to a kindle so perhaps it's a perhaps it's a universal thing but for my media pick seeing as we're putting things around the other way car uh, before horse car, yeah is uh is Netflix Bandersnatch, for those of you who've, who've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you that haven't, you've got something very interesting coming your way. It's on Netflix and it's a Black Mirror feature length, depending, and I'll explain what that means, length of a episode. And it's about a 1980s programmer um, and his his sort of quest to complete this program and it's this game. So it's absolutely fantastic, Tim. You'll love it. It's a trip down memory lane. Just reminded me when I had my ZX Spectrum and, you know, I was going to conquer the world with my my games programming and then just decided machine code was just too too damn complicated. But it really made me feel like playing those old Spectrum games again. But the amazing well, thing... Well, I, I, ne- I never even got as far as machine code. So I, I, I was stuck there with Sinclair Basic, sort of 10 
10 print tim 20 go to 10 is about the <laughs> tim is great era. 20 go to 10 that's <laughs> it job done i'm a programmer uh, but yeah so it's it's all of that basically and it's uh it's tapped into that but what's really what's really groundbreaking about this is you have to watch it on netflix on a certain device so you have to have i, I haven't watched it on a computer but i've i've got an oh, can you watch it on a can you watch it on a pc I, th- I think you have to watch it on a PC because yeah. you have to make choices throughout the game. Throughout the, oh, it's not interactive. It's sorry, interactive. yeah, throughout the film. Yeah, you have to make choices as you go along and your your yeah. choices will influence what happens to the character. And so I ended up watching it uh, fairly late and going through a lot of a few iterations before I got to the end. And you can jump out of it at some point, but it's it's really... It's really interesting. At first, I thought, oh, this is a bit gimmicky. I don't like it. You know, I don't want to make choices. I just want I want the storytellers to tell the story. But then actually, I really got into it. And it was it was kind of fascinating to see the different endings, the alternatives, and all the little details that they put into it. So Bandersnatch, I'd highly recommend it. And you, I think you're going to have to watch it on a... Uh, you can't watch it on any, any device. It's probably best watched on a computer. Um, because you, you know, there, there are points where you actually have to enter in numbers and stuff. So um... now I, I haven't seen this, but it's, it stars someone called Will Poulter. Yes, that's right, Will Poulter, and he came off social media because he got so much. This is this. That's what I read. So I haven't seen it, but I read the story. Yeah, which I think is a real shame. Things. You know, it's a real shame that you know people have treated him like that because he's a great actor. And, you know, he's got a quirky sort of look in the film, but, you know, what's the matter with people, you know? If, and I, I would hope that the the love he'd get from the other side would would outweigh the, the haters who obviously always exist. You've just got to block them or ignore them. But, well, I re- I, I've seen Son of Rambo, which I think was the first, first film he was in, and I thought that was terrific. So uh, I'd be interested to see this one. So Will Poulter, if you're listening... You know, don't listen to him. You're you're a great actor, and you know there's always going to be haters and people who are jealous out there. So, but anyway, that's um that's uh that's the that's a shame that that's come out of it. But very interesting film. Um, so from from the sublime to the ridiculous. So let's 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 segue effortlessly, seamlessly into the markets. Into the markets, <laughs> yes. It's a genuine pleasure to be able to speak to you know to yourself and and to some of the, the guests that we've or to all of the guests that we've had on over the last yeah, year. They've been brilliant. Uh, the one. The one that that springs to mind at the moment is a recent James, one James we had Ferguson. with James Ferguson, exactly. Yeah. And it was it was the point James made. It's I think Orwell said that you know uh, that in some regimes or in some environments, telling the truth can be a revolutionary act. Yeah. I, my my sense is I've kind of butchered the quote, but you kind of get the gist. Yeah. The the, the feeling I have, and, and it's something that James sort of highlighted uh, in that last interview was. You know, you can get into an environment that's so weird and that weirdness lasts so long. And I'm talking primarily about QE and ZERP, so quantitative easing followed by zero interest rate policies uh, enacted by pretty much all of the world's major central banks. And that stuff's been going on for 10 years. And that kind of hardens you to just the weirdness that's going on. And the point James made was that, you know, people have kind of uh, have kind of lost the historical thread or lost the plot a little to the extent that, you know, the, the behavior, the performance of stocks of equities over the last say decade or last couple of decades or last three decades, go back to the eighties, even the, the performance of stocks hasn't been that unusual. What is, what is utterly extraordinary is the performance of bonds. 
yeah. the, the extent to which bonds have rallied and rallied and then rallied some more uh, down to the point. I mean, I don't even keep track because we, we don't really invest it on behalf of on behalf of our clients in ones in anything other than very short term, you know, ultra high quality stuff because there's there's just no yield on offer but there is a bu- bucket load of risk and people i think are still un- largely unaware of just the risks i think that are that are build growing in the bond market which is still ridiculously overpriced as far as i'm concerned yeah. and uh, james, james highlighted that quite nice i thought in the last in the last one which is you know you can be in an environment that's so weird for so long that you get kind of used to the weirdness yeah i, th- uh, I thought what he said about yields and how when he in 2007 2008 when he was analyzing the markets and could see that that there was something there that that it implied the markets were all going to turn down and the banks were going to be in trouble but this time he just didn't see that he saw this as a buying opportunity and i thought wow that i mean it was a great call i mean look at look what's happened the market fell but it's it's rallied equally as powerfully um, and the, the other, th- the other, the other interview that I or guest, if you like, on the show that I, I, I particularly appreciated was John Hearn um, from earlier in the year, as you know, as the economist who can, act, who is actually capable of giving you a straight answer. Yeah. And the the, the point that he made, which is so refreshingly, you know, a statement of the sort of blindingly obvious, is you know, if interest rates are going up, risk. And I'm paraphrasing now, but it's it's pretty much I want to recall what he said. If interest rates are going up. Uh, risk assets are going to fall, and that means stocks and bonds. Yeah. And uh, now that clearly, that's a kind of go, massive sweeping statement. But but so far, it's broad. It's broadly come to pass, and that's not on the basis of analysing trade flows or capital flows. It's simply saying, look, interest rates up, bond prices, stock prices down. End of story. Non-negotiable. And it's the again, it's the bond component that 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 kind of intrigues me because I don't think there's. I, I don't get the sense that there are massive problems out there in equity land, but there may be on from a, a flow perspective. But this is this is so this is a communication I had a, an email I had from a subscriber to one of the subscription newsletters that I write for a company called South Bank Research, and I got this just a few days ago. Um, and this is someone who's a professional financial advisor. Um, uh, quote: um, The bond situation worries the hell out of me for many reasons. Best I could come up with as a counter was using absolute return funds and, and gold. And this is, this is a specific quote from this gentleman. A small firm I'm involved with overseas advises a few clients on portfolios. But as that is regulated advice within the EU, we have to use a prescribed process to satisfy the regulator. I'm sure you know how that works. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a MIFID license. We're encouraged to only use highly liquid usage type funds. They are obsessed with, amongst other things, liquidity. And I would echo that, that you know, liquidity is, is put on a real pedestal by the, the regulator and, and by, by clients. So we use, and then he, he cites the name of a company, which I'm not going to name, but it's a, it's a financial planning tool. Problem is, it's all based on historic price patterns for various asset classes and considers bonds being, quote, the safe part, unquote, of the portfolio. Mm. There are apparently 6,500 advisors, mainly UK-based, following that system now. So all of their clients, and I'm quoting directly now, so all of their clients are being placed into portfolios that are guaranteed to suffer heavy losses if interest rates rise as equities fall. The vast majority of UK IFAs, those that don't delegate everything to discretionary managers, are now using this methodology as it keeps them on the right side of the UK regulator and keeps their professional indemnity insurance renewal sensible. I think there are many advisors now placing folks into portfolios that they don't believe in, but their hands are tied. Something is not right within our regulatory system here. What a mess. And then he just cites 
Uh, the asset allocation model for what's called a low risk four, whatever that means, for example, it's a low risk portfolio, and basically 51% of it's in bonds. Now, uh, I don't know how you respond to that, but my my initial feeling is it, that's grisly. Gulp. That that yeah, gulp exactly. <laughs> that that at some point this is going to go, and it may already have started, but at some point this is going to go horribly wrong. Now, I accept the argument, the trading argument that that bond yields could could conceivably fall a, a little bit. No, I don't think it's going to be very much, but a little bit from here on a kind of flight to safety or kind of deflation panic. But the bottom line is they're just fundamentally unattractive to begin with. So, you know, it's it's kind of dining at or drinking at the last gasp saloon. Yeah, there's um, there's been I mean, it depends on your, how you're going to look at this in terms of time frame because of the high volatility in the markets. I think we've got to take a very short term perspective and look at the sort of market reactions to, to you know various asset classes so what i mean by that is so for, so for the sake of listeners this is basically that this is this is being recorded at the end of the first week of january yeah so the from just before christmas i was talking about the the fact that the us dollar didn't rally and that gave a kind of diversionary signal that said what just watch out there will be some more downside because the markets were very weak but there could be an impending rally from that because the the way things will tend to work is as the markets go down, you get the sense that the Fed are going to have to react to this, and that means that they're going to have to drop interest rates. So even though they've just raised them, and you get the sense, yeah, exactly. Sorry to interrupt. You get the sense that Jay Powell's already preparing people for sort of a bit of backpedaling on rates, and there yeah. probably is much more to come, much more tightening to come. So the, so actually, you're going to get this push me pull you sort of event where the market goes down they react the market goes back up again so you get a nice rally but then the underlying problems are still there there's still too much debt there's still too much household debt there's still too much government debt uh, corporation debt and so we'll get an interim rally how far that will go i'm not sure um but then it will eventually turn down so i think we're just looking at you've got to be watching the markets week to week really even if you're a long-term player because the volatility is so high i mean the intraday volatility is crazy uh but it, it's like you, you could call the market here by the time by this time next week the markets could be breaking new lows for all we know but it, at the, now, to, to that point that point about volatility paul in as much as you think you can say or as much as we think we can say do you think that that that's a reflection of if you like a a shift in the environment is it a, in other words is it, is it a, a do you think a temporary phenomenon or is it more actually more like a sort of a, a secular or a permanent reflection of the the sort of the various forces that are now at play namely on the one hand you've got etf buying which is kind of like the kind of the the kind of like the robots that just sort of sh- shuffle onto the battlefield and just keep buying stocks no matter what they get hit with versus things like al- algos algorithms um sort of quantitative trading high frequency trading more like bot type uh investing or trading why do you think if you think there's a reason even why we're seeing such pronounced volatility now is it that the kind of push me pull you of two really contradictory forces sort of the, the net buying by sort of retail if you like versus the you know the the huge the huge forces of more speculative investing well 2017 was some of the lowest volatility we've had on record and all these systems just adjust to that low volatility. And what they don't see is the larger cycle. So 
it seems pretty obvious that they're not geared up for a massive move in volatility. You know, the game of every time vol rallies, oh, you just sell it because it always comes down. Look at the look at the stats. If we go back X amount of years, every time you've seen vol go up, the Fed are on it, the ECB are on it. They'll they'll just bring in liquidity and and down it comes. Which so- which makes sorry, which makes my my point at a sort of you know somewhat glibly referred to earlier about AI actually somewhat relevant then because it yeah. really comes down to the, the quality of the coding doesn't it well yeah I mean that, that the that, sophistication of the of the software you're never looking at a long enough time frame in my view no matter how long you look at there's always you're always going to be caught out by a cycle that's bigger than the one you've set your data for I think we discussed this with Ronnie Sturfley. Um or yeah. it's it's kind of a uh, a paradox that the markets are always the same, but they always change. You know, the actual. Well, the, the, the what what you what you're referring to sounds awfully suspiciously like, for example, the LTCM long-term capital management problem, which was they had a lot of money, a lot of leverage, but their 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 their, their data set simply didn't go back far enough. Yeah, and their market assumption was wrong that you could remove risk. You can't remove risk; you can only manage risk, and it's how you manage risk and. To what you're referring to about bonds and being a safe place, one thing that I learned about markets very early on is there's no such thing as a safe place. There just isn't. Yeah. You can't say that. You can't say any asset class is a safe place. Well, say safety is relative, but not absolute. Yeah, I remember in the very old days when I used to work in a bank, a very smart customer came in, and he he said to me. They had those little share dealing terminals, and I used to work on that in the early part of my career. And and he said, "I'll give you a tip for the future: uh, always buy banks, always buy like Sainsburys and Tesco's and all that, the retailers, food retailers, and always buy insurance because you always need to eat, you always need banking, and you you always need insurance basically." And so. And I thought about that and I thought, well, that's, that's really interesting advice. And it worked for a very long time until it spectacularly failed because, of course... But it stopped, it stopped working in 2007. It did, yeah. And it's and it, at the time, I was kind of suspicious of it because you, cannot, you can't have a formula like that. It doesn't work like that. The markets don't work like that. Naturally, you've got companies like Tesco's who will so, slowly move into finance and they don't become their core market anymore because there's such a pressure for them to increase their profits if they can't increase their profits by opening more stores and then where what are they going to do some clever person's going to say well why don't we issue credit cards you know that looks like a good game because money's cheap and then they move into a different business and then their risk profile changes so style dread yeah so there's um vision creep yeah so that there there's no such thing as a safe market there's it just doesn't exist so whatever you might think look, look what's happened to apple people have always thought just buy apple that's all you have to do you know it's a great company and it's always going to keep going up not the case it's just not the case well you could argue that the death i mean death now is probably an exaggeration but the you know the the fix was in you know the, the bad news was imminent with, with apple the moment that warren buffett started buying it because yeah. he was basically throwing out his own principles and saying well, although i don't claim to understand technology i'm going to buy the buy the hell out of this stuff Yes, it's it's very it's very strange. I mean, even a sort of cursory look at. Look, I've been sort of suspicious of Apple for a very long time, and to be fair, it's just kept going up and up and up. So I've been, you know, wrong on it. But I I can't see how a company that makes all of its money or the majority of its money from iPhones can there therefore continue to rise at the rate that it is because there's so much competition 
And there's so many, the technology is, it can't increase at the rate that it has done over the past few years. You, you go from a very slow iPhone 3GS to the 4 to the 5 very quickly. There's a big gain in technology because it can be faster and it can have a better camera because it's new technology and you can have more memory and a, a faster chip and all that. But then what what's happening now? We're just getting a bit more real estate on the screen. Uh, yeah, a bit of a faster chip. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't, you can't make a faster phone call, can you? So you can't send a, a faster message, but you maybe you can play a certain game that you couldn't play before. Well, most people aren't interested in that. You know, they're going to communicate by WhatsApp and very simple means. So, but also, and, also the magic of, of free market capitalism is that once a, 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 a company has got a sort of groundbreaking product that's hugely profitable, then everyone else is going to muscle in and try and try and take a piece of it. Exactly, and and therefore you're if you if you're trying to get people to buy your product on the basis of just your name alone. You've got to be careful because you're charging a premium product when most people, most most youths across Europe don't have the money. You know, they there's a there's a, a big percentage that are unemployed. So they're not going to be moving into a premium product where if you drop it, that's a big problem. Or if you lose it, they're going to be buying something else. And so I had a conversation with, with uh, Shane McAvoy about uh, the Huawei phone and the Huawei phones are just, they're fantastic. They're really Be cool. careful because Shane, Shane might be exercising him. So he might just have dropped a barbell on his foot or something. Not again. Not again. Not the other, <laughs> not the other foot. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like, they they are fantastic phones. I've just got one for my daughter and it, they're very cheap and they feel very high end. And it's like, you look at that and you go, wow, that's... Uh, you, you buy Apple products because they they have a premium feel, but there's a premium feel to the competition, and there isn't a premium price. And so, think, think about it. Think about a, a Chinese manufacturer is that, that you know is going to raise you know concerns about about spyware and stuff. You've probably seen there's a brilliant there's a brilliant one of these cartoons if you like, sort of photo of uh, Mark Zuckerberg and there's a little kid uh, sort of playing on a PC and uh, the, the kid the kid's sort of little the sound bubble is so uh, the kid's saying uh, my dad says you're spying on us and Mark Zuckerberg just replies he's not your dad <laughs> <laughs> no I haven't seen that I haven't seen that that's very well you good. have now you I have, have now. now that's very good that's very good but the um, they're looking for innovation so they're looking to create the, the, the next big thing and the watch wasn't the next big thing as we kind of said at the time it's a nice product but it's not going to be it's not going to I can I can hole. remember when I can remember when when kids had uh, when you could have a watch that had a calculator. You remember those yeah, that had like the bunch yeah. of calculators. And this is a kind of peak like, 1983 moment or something. It was just absolutely incredible. And I I, th- I think I even remember a, a watch with a television on. I can't. I, I'm not. I may have. I may have invented that. Um, I remember portable. There were little portable TVs. And I, I know a friend of mine at university bought, they all just sort of went out and increased their student over, overdrafts to buy these TVs to watch some football game and then couldn't get a signal. You know, there was like, it just didn't quite work. But I don't, I don't remember a watch TV, but I mean, they, they, they may well have had one. But the whole idea of making a phone call on your watch just doesn't work. I mean, it just simply, you can't do that. It's Well, it makes you look like a CIA spook or something yeah it does and everyone can hear the conversation i know there's some people (laughs) like to walk around with their with the hands free on so you can hear the other side of it which is which is strange but it it just it just doesn't work it really doesn't and so people don't really want to make calls from their 
from their wrists. They want to make. But, but, but back, back to stocks, though. So, so you, you're mentioning Apple and Apple obviously coming off. Yeah. So uh, so so it's just kind of reflective of of um, the the market just sort of realizing that that the main earner is has a huge amount of competition and. Now, I'm I'm wary of. Sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm wary of sort of uh, putting too much focus on the macro because I think you know, my, my take for the last X years has been the macro is too difficult to call. So we just try and sort of diversify sensibly from the ground up, from bottom up. Yeah. Um, that said, now I, I don't know if you follow Russell Napier, but Russell's uh, Russell Napier for those people who don't know him is a financial market historian and also a, a, a well-respected uh, uh, analyst, market analyst. And I was reading his piece. Now, you can read this on the ERIC website, Electronic Research Interchange, which is something that that, that uh, Russell's put together. Um, so it's eri-c.com. And although it's a sort of a, a, an auction house for research, Russell's own letter is free. And it's free to, it's free to enroll on ERIC. So you don't have to pay to, to, to access what's called the solid ground, which is his, his piece. And I was reading the solid ground yesterday. This is, this is Russell's piece. And... I don't want to quote too extensively because it's easier if you go to the horse's mouth. But he makes he basically raises the issue of welcome to 2019. Basically, uh, the the two largest economies in the world are are tightening monetary policy, and there will be implications for that. And the figures he cites, um, and the distinction between the two is that the U.S. is, if you like, just removing a bit of I, I described as removing a bit of froth in terms of excess. Uh, reserves, whereas what the Chinese are doing is actually kind of eating into, you know, they're, they're actually eating into the flesh of their their own economy now. So it's a slightly more malign development. But these are the figures that he cites. Um, so this is quoting Russell directly from the peak in Chinese bank reserves in December 2017. Something like 233 billion dollars of renminbi liquidity has been removed from the Chinese banking system in the form of a reduction in bank reserves. And for comparison, we've had a $469 billion decline in the total reserves of the US banking system over the same period. Now, these are big numbers. Um, and then uh, where where are the figures? Um, so basically, he's, he's saying it's all about QT. It's all about quantitative tightening. The, basically, the impact of the, the last time this happened. For those looking for some guidance from history to gauge the impact of Chinese QT, we do not have too far to look. The last contraction in assets by the People's Bank of China, so the Chinese Central Bank, was from February 2015 to December 2015. Do you, do you want to have a guess how much the MSCI or what the MSCI World Index did on the back of that? For, for what period was that, sorry? So it was uh, Feb 15 to December 2015, which is the last time that the Chinese Central Bank was was basically shrinking its uh, its book. There was a pullback. Uh, from... M- MS, you go on. Was it, say, 20%? Yeah, exactly. MSCI World Index declined by 19% from its 2015 high to its low in Q1 2016. And he goes on to add the impact on commodity prices was even greater with the price of crude down 57% and fears that Glencore was insolvent. Now, clearly, there was more going on than just Chinese QT. But the fact in, in, in simple isolation that the US and China are now it, it deploying QT, it, it just gives you a bit of pause for thought, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the Chinese market is. It's had a little I mean, the Chinese bounce. market lost lost a quarter of its value last year. Yeah, it's it's had a little bounce, but it's not. It's still very much in a downward trend, and it looks like it's made a major top. I mean, it, again, it could it could bounce with the rest of the markets, um, which I guess look a, a little bit oversold. However, you want to describe them, 
but uh, it, the the bigger picture just doesn't look positive yet, and there's it's got to do a lot more work before I think we can call a turnaround there. I mean, somewhat ominously, um, er, um, Eric uh, Russell Napier starts his piece by, by quoting Barry Eichengreen, and there's a book called um, Golden Fetters: The Gold Standard and the Great Depression. It's either a book or possibly an essay, but I know he has written written a book about this, and it essentially is just. It, it, there's a there's kind of there's a somewhat awkward precedent for I mean the comparison specifically is 1929 that that the US was tightening mm. at a time when it didn't really need to and that led to a kind of chain reaction of basically monetary contraction throughout the world and the 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 ultimate outcome of which was the Great Depression. It was amazing. So, it was absolutely amazing. It was almost like they. It kind of it kind of reminds me that that scene in Jaws, you know, where the fisherman is just like increasing the pressure on the boat, and you know it's going to explode. It's exactly, and yeah. it's like stop the boat, stop and the steam, the steam coming off it, the smoke coming off. Exactly, the, uh, and it's like well, that's right. what they were doing then. They knew it, they yeah. sort of knew they were going to blow it up, and they just kept going just to just to kind of learn them. I don't know. I don't know what what the point was there. And so I mean, they, that's not if, that's not to say that's not to say that, that, that I think either is is necessarily uh, calling for a, a, a crash, but it's just I mean I I, I, so I I I've tended not to focus on macro speculations if you like macro anticipations yeah. of, of events because I'm not sure it's necessarily helpful, but I just wonder whether in this instance the impact of of quantitative tightening by as as Russell points out the biggest economies you know the central banks are the biggest economies in the world. Whether that's going to be a, a let's just let's just say a, a bit of a headwind for uh, you know, for for all risk assets this year until such time as it goes into reverse. But then, but then that's even more fascinating because it, in the on, on the basis that let's say I mean forget China because I think people accept the Chinese market that they, they, they try and you know control and manipulate prices. But let, let's let's look at the U.S. example. If the fear I would have, the concern I would have is that if the Fed does effectively kind of raise the white flag. You've got a currency crisis potentially because people are going to say this is this is ridiculous. You know, mm. if you're telling us that you can't raise rates to, I mean, what is the Fed funds now? Two and three quarters percent, three percent, something like that. Something like that. But if you're saying we can't have U.S. short rates above that level, um, that then that's not a strong economy. That's a desperate economy. Well, the gold market certainly picked up on the back of that, hasn't it? It's it's uh, it's kind of leading something there, saying that. The and I, and I'd weak. say this is. Yeah, and I'd say this is this is a reflection of you know the skies darkening with chickens coming home to roost because you should never have had the extent of the the stimulus and the distortions in in money for the going back to two thousand and eight. Absolutely. So effectively, all that's happening now is you know we're getting kind of or or, or monetary policy technocrats are you know are getting finally getting you know the, the can can't be kicked much further down the road. Yeah, I, I think the way we'll pl- try and plan out how we think the markets might unfold in this year, this, depending on their reaction, and I would never really look at what the Fed are doing anyway. I would always just look at the price action. But I think this is this is one of those times when I think actually it's worth paying a bit of attention to what they say because if they don't if they don't take their their foot off the gas here and ease the markets a little bit, then there will be. They'll be saying something. They'll be giving a message beyond, you know, what they've what they've done before. And so, if we assume that they will play this out in the way that they've played it before, in other words, they'll look at the fact that the markets are in distress or have been in distress, and then ease monetary policy a bit. Then 
we should see a rally. Now, how far that rally goes, I'm not sure, but we should see a sustained rally. But then ultimately the problems come back in. And so... Well, does, isn't that the point at which the market then starts to say, you know what, this emperor is actually naked? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the point. And then, then we get the, the big one that we've been waiting for for the... the for the longest time so then we then we get the bigger than bigger than 2007 2008 sort of reversal and you know to to be fair and and as much as i love what james ferguson said if you look at how the banks are trading and that was that was again i've said this many times on this podcast they still haven't really recovered they still haven't really responded that positively so they may be in better condition than they were but could you tell the banks to react because yeah. it's like i mean of course the markets are imperfect so it could be they're waiting for something else but i don't know i i just don't I'm, i don't see it other than that they're, they're in a poor condition I'm not aware of many banks. I mean, I, I, because I'm basically not not envisaging investing in them. But I, I'm not aware of many banks that are trading on on huge premiums to book right now, including those even in the states. I and mean, I'd make a special exception probably for likes of J.P. Morgan, but for a lot of the sort of the former broker dealers, I think they're 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 not expensive. They're mm. certainly not. They're nowhere near what they were you know, where they were at before sort of the 07 um, credit credit crunch. I mean, there was. I did read somewhere that that Lloyd's apparently, given that it pumps out a dividend, is is looking inverted commas cheap. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying. Yeah, but how many people got burnt holding Lloyd's because of their eight percent dividend yield, which yeah. then stopped? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, it's it's certainly not react. The market's not reacting to that yet. Yeah, I mean, of course there is time, but that I think that's an interesting point that if this is if this is different. <laughs> And we are going to see a sustained, you know, bull market, not just a bear market bounce, just a move back into. I mean, actually, despite the fact that markets have come off a long way, um, if you look at the very big picture, the trends are still up. You know, the the long term trends are still up unbelievably uh, because they've been going on for so long and have been so powerful. It still could fit in with a long term upward trend. that's why I was saying in the last podcast that when it comes to the technicals, to see a massive reversal, we've seen a, a sort of an interim reversal with what's happened now, but to see a massive reversal, you kind of need a rally and then for the market to come off. So without wanting to tell the market what to do, that would fit in m- more nicely with, with what are the characteristics of what a major top is. You normally see a massive reversal pattern. We've seen a major one, but not not an absolutely massive one yet. And so there is still time for that to play out. But uh, but yeah, it's it, it's it's fascinating actually. It's fascinating. I mean, they say as January goes, so goes the rest of the year. So there'll be some very close sort of monitoring of the price action throughout January. But is, is that is that really? Because if I remember correctly, January last year was relatively strong, and that. What, if that was the case, it certainly wasn't followed through well, during the yeah, year. Yeah, it, it, it was kind of an eighty percent, seventy seventy-five to eighty percent relationship. That it, so that's why people never work a hundred percent of the time. Nothing in the markets does, but it was a good enough relationship for people to yeah. underwatch it. Um, so there's obviously exceptions, and um, so despite that, it's, it's like one of those habits. You know, people people always assume there's going to be a rally, a Christmas rally, the Santa rally, and you know, yeah, I've never. I've never really bought into that but it's a bit like the, the old wall of money analogy oh there's a wall of money coming your way yeah and that, that, that every time the wall of money is sighted it, it that never quite 
comes to pass. So as the markets go down and presumably, well, yields will obviously rise. Does how does that affect your value analysis when you're when you're looking at potential opportunities? I, I mean, the, the the first thing I'd say just in relation to last year is people may be unaware of just how universal the, the bad news was, particularly out there in sort of equity land. So I was looking at some stats and I'll, I'll I'm, I'm sure there's, there's there's more to come. But the, the, the sort of very early sort of postmortem for 2018, I was looking at a, a table which I can happily put in the show notes from Bespoke Investment Group, which was a, a, basically a table of major ETFs, predominantly, you know, not exclusively, but predominantly in the US. Not a single developed market, to the best of my knowledge, um, gained in value last year. In other words, every single developed market, stock market, fell. The only market of any type it, it, you know, emerging as well that apparently gained in 2018 was Qatar. And Qatar is being blockaded by Saudi Arabia. So, you know, you know Make, make of that what you will. Wow. Um, go, go figure that one. So basically, every single market fell last year. And actually, most commodities also fell. I think the only commodity that, that gained last year was natural gas for, you know, for some bizarre reason. So the, the extent, it, not just the scale of the falls, but the range of the markets that fell is, I suspect, possibly unprecedented, certainly since uh, 2008, possibly going back further than that. In other words, which I, I find in a sense, I'm not clutching at straws, but I find that in a sense almost reassuring because it's quite clearly not uh, a change in company-specific fundamentals that's going on. It's basically everyone, for whatever reason, just suddenly got a conniption fit and decided they want to take risk off the table. There's, strangely, the Brazilian stock market is breaking into new highs. So there are areas that are just bucking the trend. I mean, there, there's, there used to be this, this I think, prior 2002, 2007 2008 the markets were very much synchronized and what we've seen since then is a very slow process of 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 uncorrelation so in other words it it does actually matter what you buy but i think in a downturn everything goes down as they say the only thing that goes up in a downturn is volatility and and that's kind of in a true correction that that's 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 the only thing that you can buy. But that's but that's not necessarily bad news. So the way I look at it, you asked about sort of the value perspective. Is let's say for the sake of argument, we're going to be sort of brutally simple, oversimplistic. But let's say for the sake of argument, the market splits out between let's call it growth stocks and value stocks. If if the stocks are genuine value, i.e., that the, firstly that the company fundamentals are sound and there's no change, you know they're not they're not losing any money there. You know this year's results are probably going to be at least as good as last year's. So let's assume that, but these are cheap stocks, so that's the kind of, sort of rough and ready uh, definition of value. Then as the stocks get cheaper, they become even more attractive. Yeah. So that that's the first that's the first thing to say. The second is that let's just call it growth, i.e., kind of. Previously high growth, high return, probably di- dividend, probably yielding nothing. To be fair, but basically, I'd call that kind of like me- quasi momentum stocks. In other words, they've been going up, and now that, that that upwards journey has stopped, and they're now trending down. When a growth stock starts falling, then it's it's not attractive at any price until the downtrend is is complete. Uh-huh. So, so the example I would cite, I think it's it's either Enron or Worldcom. But I remember very, very distinctly one of those two companies. There was a U.S. asset manager who shall remain nameless, uh, but a big, big firm, a huge, huge asset gathering firm. And the guy in question basically bought was 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 buying in dollar cost averaging and all the way down to zero. 
So in other words, as that wow. stock, I forget whether it was Enron or WorldCom, but it was one of the two. Yeah. Uh, as that as that came off, he was continually loading up the truck, thinking this is cheap, this is cheap, this is cheap, and and basically wow. he was he was taken out because it you know it was never cheap, and it, at zero it probably wasn't cheap because it was a fraud. Yeah. And yeah, that was that's memorable. that's that's the distinction that in a in, if if you crudely split the world up into sort of genuine value and genuine if you like growth and i'm not i'm not dissing growth i'm just saying is that i'm making a clear demarcation between the two then if if the stock market goes down if the market goes down value gets more and more attractive the the, the cheaper it gets because there's a presumed margin of safety yeah. so if if stock is worth let's say 10 dollars and it's trading at five dollars. If it trades at four dollars, you're thinking, well, that's even better. Yes, Whereas yes. a growth stock can go from ten to five. But if it's ultimately going to end at fifty cents, mm. then you're not. You know, it, it's not cheaper at any price until the downtrend is complete. It's because there's nothing absolutely under uh, underpinning it. If there's no cash flow to underpin it, to, yeah, to because, and it's a, and it's a momen- and it's a, and primarily a momentum driven you know proposition. So maybe it's maybe maybe that's the thing that people should be aware of. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure people follow this stuff to get an idea of you know which of the stocks that the kind of the algos most like and i'm sure they're going to be mega caps typically mm. so you know if a stock tends to be a sort of plaything of robots then get a load of how low it might go yeah. in an extreme downturn so with asia showing value it's shown even more value given that it's absolutely yeah. abs- absolutely right so uh, you know just just to choose once to, to cite one specific investment so the, uh, this is not a recommendation because the fund is closed basically to new investors. But the 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 Asian Prosperity Fund, which is a fund that we helped to seed uh, when it was launched in November 2012, it's a pan-Asian fund. It invests in Japan, it invests in Vietnam, it invests across Asia. Funnily enough, doesn't have any real China exposure or India exposure. Oh, okay. Not not because there isn't value there, but because there's nothing that meets the characteristics for the manager of the fund. Right. And so he, he he prefers you know there's also clearly queries over question marks over sort of corporate governance issues in those economies so uh, anyway so but it, it's a pan asian fund but it's predominantly uh well, it's major focus at the moment is japan and vietnam um that all, all i would say is that the asian prosperity fund is something that all of our clients own um and it's been our best best performing investment now the the reason I mentioned it is the valuation of that fund, which had a you know not not a great 2018, but then nobody did. I don't know any yes, manager did. I mean we had we had a poor year, so everything suffered. But the the point I'd make is the valuations of that underlying portfolio, the Asian Prosperity Fund, are now more attractive than when it was launched. And when it was launched, it was trading on a P. You know the, the overall portfolio was trading on a price earnings of I think nine. A price to book of 0.9, dividend yield of four and a half percent, historic return, historic return on equity of its holdings, i.e., prior 12 months, was something like 17 percent. The valuations of that fund, and that's been the best performing Asian fund we know um, over the last five years. The point is, the fund is now even more attractively priced than when it was launched. So, although clearly these these returns do not come in straight lines, if we liked it a lot in 2012, which we did. We like it even more now. And the fact that say, say, there's been a ubiquitous market shift down, I think actually in many respects, and again, I'm not, I like to think I'm not clutching at straws, could be good news to the extent that you know, the selling has been so indiscriminate that everything's got sort of washed out, taken out with the tide. But yeah. there's some great stuff out there that doesn't, doesn't deserve to be trading at the valuations it now is at. So the sell-off in, I mean, the sell-off in Asia to me feels 
somewhat over and I'm talking specifically with regard to Japan, not to China. Um, and, you know, all I know is from, from visiting some of these companies with Greg Fisher, who's the manager of that fund, um, some of these companies are quietly just, just knocking out record profits, record revenues. So the idea that this is, this is, if there's only one thought I can leave with people, it's this one, which is, which is you know, extremely important. There are two markets out there. There's the, there's the stock market, or rather there's two prices out there. There's the price of stocks, and then there's the, the, the other data, the, the, the critical data set is, how's the company actually performing? So let's reduce it to the level of one stock. The share price has gone down. If it's, in, in, if it's been from most markets, it's down by 20% over the last year, plus or minus. But if the, if the operating results of that company are unchanged from 2017, <laughs> then that's just a bargain. The chances are it's more likely to be a bargain than not. So the share price in isolation doesn't tell you anything yes, except yeah. what, what the mob thinks about the company or yeah. about the share price more specifically. And that could also be driven by algorithms and you know, high-frequency trading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and a whole bunch of robots. So the, the share price is actually simply telling you what R2-D2 thinks about the, about, about the share price, not even the company. But as long as the company itself, uh, as long as the, the bottom-up performance is okay, there's, there's, you know, there's bluntly nothing to worry about. So everyone is sort of myopically focused on what the stock markets are doing, but that, which is fine. Clearly, you need to be mindful of the price. But the, 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 real, you know, the real important data is not the share price per se. It's actually at the company level, at least at the stock-specific level, how's the company performing? And you'll find that out every quarter because they've got a legal obligation to, to deliver that uh, information. There's a, I'm reading Taleb's uh, book, Skin in the Game, which I absolutely love. And uh, I haven't finished it yet, but there was one part of it where he's talking about how it's with regard to the market, and I think this – plays into what you've just said very nicely the it's it, you're not looking at the the view of every player in the market you're looking at the most persistent at any one time so it's not that everybody wants to sell stocks it's just that you've got a very persistent seller at one point pushing the value of that stock down and once that so you're, you're actually looking at a marginal player rather than than anything else because this 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 is also relevant to the observation and i've never managed to in, entirely to to our to answer this one which is you know how is it that that and this is the, the the real mystery and the magic of of the stock market that at a given time, you know, a share a, a share trade a share transaction takes place whereby the buyer thinks he's got a good deal and the seller thinks he's also got a good deal. Well, they can't both be right, and yeah. so the idea that you know, to sort of to reinforce that point, to reiterate that point, the idea that a, a, that a share price going down is bad news. Well, it, it wasn't bad news for whoever bought it at that level. That's true. But also with regard to that, there is one other factor, and that's time frame, because the buyer and the seller could both be right. But it depends but on over, the time but, frame. but over different time frames, exactly. So yeah. one, one could be a day trader and the other could be a, you know, a long-term value manager. Exactly, exactly. But it's, uh, it is fascinating. I think the market usually does whatever it does to kind of upend... To shake, or to shake out weekends. Exactly. Like the, the majority, to shake out the majority. And you end up with a kind of bandwagon situation where what looks the most attractive, and the analogy I always have in my head is like literally a bandwagon. The more and more people jump on this bandwagon until eventually it becomes... Well, there's no, there's no one left There's no one left to come on. Exactly. No and then, then at the most attractive time, say bonds, you know, there's everybody on it and then yeah. it falls apart. And so that that's a kind of natural market cycle. You can't have a a, a single asset 
dominate all the time. It may do in in a cycle that's that's many decades, but eventually there will come a time when it when it reverses and it all reverses. But we're definitely in for a fantastic year. Whichever so to, way- to put to put you on the spot uh, again, I think you were maybe just going to say, but what what's your what's your thesis for? Let's say the major assets, major asset classes for 2019. Well, I think short term, it looks like there's a rally on the cards. Uh, and I, I can't really stick my neck out as to how far it's going to go because it's it's just so fluid right now. So how I'd like to see this play out and the, the, the kind of map for it is that we get a rally. We get a pretty decent rally um, in everything. And then it's, it's sort of like it all calms down a little bit and then the market turns down again and so whether whether we get all of that in the space of this year i'm not sure but i think part part one would be you know rally and and, and then a consolidation over the next sort of three to six months and then as we move in towards the end of this year it's things are very close to to turning down again now the, the only caveat for that is that you know i am looking for a career top you know, in the markets. So that means that they that every, all bets are off if if markets just sort of collapse from here. And there's a few there's a few warning signs, uh, like the the strength in the yen, the way the yen is suddenly rallied, that's usually a risk off currency. Yeah. And so th- there there are some signs that you you can't really ignore. But for the moment, I think that's that's how it will play out. But it, it it's um I'm I'm willing to change that strategy, but for now I think rally because the dollar will weaken because there'll be this kind of reaction to the fact that it's fallen so much that the Fed will respond. And not that I look at the fundamentals, but I think that's an, that at this point this is an interesting yeah. player. There are a few signs with certain emerging markets making a new high. You know that doesn't sort of jive with a broader massive sell-off. I'd expect those to be coming down as well. Um, so. Uh, and do you think and do you think the trigger for the let's say the the bigger sell off the main event if you like could be uh, either an explicit statement by say the fed that they're actually you know, they've they've stopped tightening or act, the the actual delivery of a of a cut i think that i think the second one it, it would it, that would be so interesting if they uh, if they actually moved because to it point- would also it would also it would also put to the sword the idea of the whole Fed put to begin with the idea that you no know, well the Fed's got your back and if yes. the Fed interest rate cut doesn't deliver the goods then oh my god because yeah. no one knows no one knows that's always been the case for you know, certainly as long as I've been in the market and you know so it's going back to the eighties and and the likes of Greenspan um, it's going to be a weird world in which you know Fed cuts don't don't bring home the bacon anymore. Yes, that's exactly it. And and the there was signs that the market was going to go down. Um, and you know we 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 did discuss them, but there's there was such pervasive bearishness out there that it's it's so unusual that you get these these two things together. So if the if interest rates are being cut and there's a a more dovish policy out there, and that that for me is a much a more characteristic scenario for the market to then turn down and people be scratching their heads because that's that's just kind of how the markets work it's it's like it's never as clear cut as we think it is but you know give given given the extent of the rallies we've got to you've got to have a very flexible approach because we we just i mean of course nobody absolutely knows but it's just that seems to be the way it's going to play out or that's how i'd like it to play out 
Um, I'll, I'll put you on. I'll, I'll put you on the spot again. So you're allowed one one asset. It could be an asset class or a sp specific investment, if you like. Uh, you're allowed one um, putative uh, investment to, to go long this year, and, and in other words, you're only allowed to hold it for for a year. Oh, wow. And you're allowed uh, and one specific <laughs> investment that you can go short. So do you have a candidate in each case? Oh, it depends. The, I guess the the. Or you're allowed to stop loss. You're allowed to stop loss. Well, I, well, look, I, I, I would say that the, I'd say Japan still, uh, uh, you know, that that's the one I would buy. And yeah, uh, check, check, checks in the post, by the way. <laughs> no, so I, would, I, honestly, I would say, I would say Japan, and yeah. uh, that would be the the one that I think. Would, and that's would sorry, that's from a that's from a technical. I mean, clearly the valuation argument I'd say is 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 encouraging, but and is that from a technical perspective? For it's you? it's partly from a technical, and it's partly yeah. from a a kind of cyclical perspective, and the fact that they went into deflation first, and they're coming out, and it yeah. just seems that they're in a different cycle. They're, they're in a, the just a world. different part of the cycle as everybody else. Yes, yeah. exactly. So. So it's it's also relatively defensive. You know, I can see at the moment they're up 3% and the rest of the market's been down. Um, if I had to sort of shut my eyes and say I can't look at it for a year, it would be Japan. The the gambler in me would say, would take a punt on one of the cryptocurrencies just because although... No, they, they've really, they really suffered last year. They've really they? suffered. No, everybody hates them. So it's like, it would just be so poetic if they just had this huge rally. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have no special of uh, affinity for them i just think they're just another asset class as far as i'm concerned but it would be interesting to see them put in a, a big a big rally so that's a very risky one what about um, a short short would still have to be the a sort of european stock market that's going to underperform even if everything rallies and that'll be i'll, I'll pick italy so yeah. I, whilst there'll be a, a fairly decent bounce at some point I still think there's it's going to underperform and so, uh, yeah, so it, it I, actually, should I say short the dollar? Perhaps shorting the dollar would be a good a good trade here, although I'm a long term bull. Um, I think, yeah, this this next few months could be could be quite ropey for the dollar. So yeah, it's a toss up between Italy and the dollar. But I'll, I'll go with Italy just because. So, so bear with me on this one, Paul. I'm going to change, change, change topic a little. Yeah. Uh, or quite a bit. Um, ha have you been out for a meal in the last month? Um, yes, I have. Yes. Okay. In that meal, can you, can you suggest the mildest complaint you had about that experience? The mildest complaint? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Maybe the restaurant could have been a little bit bigger, I suppose, but that's been a little bigger. So, that, so that is your Smith's album name. So I, I owe this one to <laughs> at many type, many types of tea on Twitter. Because uh, I only just came across it this morning. I thought it was spectacular. So um, your Smith's album name is the mildest complaint you had about the last dining experience you had outside of your home. <laughs> so for, for many types of tea, this was the potatoes weren't all I expected. Now, I, I, I happen it. to have that album and it is outstanding because Morrissey always, Morrissey always brings home the bacon. Uh, and I'm just looking through it now. So basically, you can you can track this one on Twitter. It's at many types of tea. Uh, it's the person that has tweeted this. And looking through some of that thread, it's a very long thread now, as you might expect. It's 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 clearly caught a nerve. Um, some of these I could believe were actually Morris, if not Smith, then Morrissey albums or singles. Um, I suspect this isn't the beer I ordered. Um, 
it, it would have been more relaxing without the children. Um, and, and one one that's pure Morrissey is 110% Morrissey is I was already full, so I could not have enough. <laughs> I've got to find that term. That's brilliant. So you'll find it. You'll find it on at many types of tea is the uh, is the handle of the the Twitter handle of the person is that. But that's outstanding. That's my that's my um, that's my cheeky sign off for this week. Well, we've got plenty to add to the show notes, so they'll all be in there. And the the other the other the, the final thing I'd say for this is actually a request. If anyone has a request for someone that you'd like to join us on the podcast as a guest, um, please feel free. Uh, we'll happily take nominations because we, and this has actually been a, a somewhat rare double double header for us this week because we said so we tended to have have guests on for the last last few shows. So we, I mean, we're happy to do either, but it's it's nice to have a, a third party on, and p- particularly if it's actually someone that doesn't necessarily get airtime through more conventional media. So if yeah. if you ha- happen to be listening and and would like to. Nominating confidence, somebody that that might 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 like joining us on the show, then please feel free. Uh, and you can you can reach me uh, on Twitter at Tim F Price, uh, and Paul has a Twitter handle. Uh, it's a bit more bit more complex it's than like that. A isn't password, it, so yeah, don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, contact him; it's easier. And mentioning dispatches to Stephen Gastra, who was listening to the podcast on Christmas Day, which I think was absolutely brilliant that's, that's such beyond the call of duty frankly. Yeah, it's just i just love things like that it's so great we've got such fantastic people listening to, listening to oh he was thing. taking the dog for a walk he was taking the dog for a yeah, walk yeah yeah and everyone was listening to mamma mia so the, the dog mia. the dog the dog was listening to the podcast <laughs> somebody was <listening laughs> well, sharing the headphones maybe you know earbud each perhaps but yes thank you thank you for that it was absolutely great and you know again thank you for all your support it's just been it's overwhelming it's really fantastic what i have i have one last one last smith's album to to inject into the mix it's not mine it's from from the thread as as you'll you'll note if you you go on to it the old people disapprove of how we are laughing (laughs) (laughs) that's great I'll have to check that out, Tim. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks for all your recommendations and your thoughts. And we'll be back in two weeks' time. So thanks again. Please get in contact if you want to be on the show or if you know anyone who you think should be on the show, we'll contact them. It's been a real pleasure. Have a fantastic And a happy new year. And a happy new year to everyone. Take care. See you soon. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.